This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is reaching our potential of joy and healing. In the first half, Donald L. Staley shares his address, Be Strong and of Good Courage. Then in the second half, Jonathan G. Sandberg speaks on healing equals courage plus action plus grace. Interestingly, it was about 50 years ago, in fact, this very week, that we graduated from the University of Illinois with our Ph.D. I say we because Sister Staley earned her share of that degree as she worked to help pay the rent and the food bills during our three years of graduate school. Over the ensuing 40 years, we have lived in the suburban areas of Chicago and New York City where we've worked and raised our family. We were blessed with a rewarding career as we traveled the world of business. We were blessed with opportunities for service in the Church, as well as organizations in various parts of the world. For the past nine-plus years, I have served as a member of the Quorum of the Seventy, and that, too, has been a special experience and blessing. Now, the Lord's hand has truly been in our lives, and but with each of these blessings have come tests and challenges, just as most of you periodically experience, and as you will continue to do so in the years ahead. This is a special time in your life when choices are made and patterns and habits are formed that will have a major impact on who you are and who you will become. Your enrollment here at BYU is a significant step in preparing you for that future. In addition to your educational pursuits of your future, happiness, personnel, righteousness, and relationships with the Lord will depend in large part on the habits you embrace and the choices and commitments you make over these next few years. As I think about your preparation for the next steps in your life, ponder with me for a moment how the Lord transferred responsibility from Moses to Joshua. He gave Joshua an extraordinary promise followed by some strong counsel. Listen just for a few excerpts of what the Lord had to say. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of good courage. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. After reminding Joshua on the importance of obedience, the Lord promises, For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. A great promise. And then for the third time the Lord repeated in the ninth verse, Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. The Lord's message to Joshua, I will not fail thee. I will not forsake thee, has been repeated through the ages in the scriptures and throughout the prophets of the Restoration. It applies to each of us today, conditioned, of course, upon our obedience to his commandments and the covenants we make in the temples. Some of you know exactly what you want to do with your life. Others are still pondering and discovering opportunities for the future. In either case, it is essential to your future success and happiness that you keep your minds and your hearts open to the promptings of the Spirit. As you live to be worthy of those spiritual promptings, the Lord has promised He will be with you. Joshua later made clear to his people his own choice when he said, Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, 
we will serve the Lord. A philosopher once gave good added counsel regarding choices. He said, Choose well. Your choice is brief and yet endless. As you acknowledge that the Lord will not fail you as long as you are obedient to His teachings, then I would ask you, are you happy with the present conduct of your life? What changes or course corrections would you make in order to take full advantage of your daily opportunities for learning and personal and spiritual growth? Now is the time to set the course for what you want to become, five, ten, or even fifty years from now. Now, during our few minutes together today, I would be my prayer that something might be said or felt by you that will help you crystallize your thoughts as to who you are and what you have the potential to become. It has been said that one of the greatest tragedies of our time is that so many people live so far below their potential. President Spencer W. Kimball continually encouraged us to lengthen our stride and to enlarge our vision. President Hinckley is counseled, do your best. And then he frequently adds, but I want to emphasize that it be your very best. We are too prone to be satisfied with mediocre performance. We are capable of doing much better. The late Elder Neil A. Maxwell said it another way, The Lord loves each of us too much to merely let us go on being what we now are, for He knows what we have the possibility to become. Implicit in the statements from each of these distinguished leaders is the message that each of us can and should do more to meet the Lord's expectations of us. Let's talk about a few principles that are essential for success and happiness as you develop your careers, your families, and service to the Lord. As you further refine your plans for the future, we will not only find success in a temporal sense, but you will be moving toward achieving a relationship with your Father in Heaven and Savior that prepares you for an eternal relationship in the celestial kingdom. First and foremost in your pursuit is the development and nurturing of a strong personal testimony. I assume that each of you have a basic testimony of the gospel, yet I am sure some of you struggle periodically. Many are strong as you have returned from missions or have focused on prayer and study that have brought you to an undeniable testimony of the truth. Presumably, that was a major factor in motivating you to come to BYU. Hopefully, you feel that your testimony is vibrant and growing stronger each day. Yet even though you are in a special environment here at BYU, I would suspect that many of you are being challenged by the things of the world with which you periodically deal. I am referring to the daily bombardment of worldly messages and enticements from the media of TV, movies, and the Internet that tend to tempt or distract you from keeping your testimony strong and staying completely true to gospel principles and covenants. Certain kinds of peer pressures can also be challenging. You know about those. Let me tell you about a young friend I met while I was serving as president of a stake that included West Point Academy in the state of New York. He was a bright student at the academy. He had been given leave of absence from West Point to serve a mission and was readmitted on completion of his mission, not a common occurrence. On one of my visits to West Point Branch, he requested some time to talk. As we talked, he told me of how he had deepened his conversion to the gospel as he had served his mission. He remembered the feelings and the strength of his testimony as he returned to West Point following his mission. And then he said, In the two years since my mission, I have gradually 
felt the spirit slip away from me. Every day I'm associating with other cadets with different values. Their whole focus in life is successfully graduating from the academy. Periodically, the honor code is compromised. Nearly every weekend is party time, alcohol, and young women. I am hazed and ridiculed because I have refused to join with them. President Staley, he said, I need help. I feel like I am being tossed to and fro on the seas of life, and I have lost my mooring. My gospel anchor of the past seems to be giving way to the life of fun and pleasures enjoyed by my colleagues at the Academy. As we talked, it became clear that the magnet of the adversary was gradually but surely drawing him into Satan's grasp. My young friend had lost his mooring, not because Satan's magnet had become stronger, but because he had not been nurturing and tending to his testimony. He was in the process of losing that which he had previously so deeply cherished. I realize you are in a very different environment here at BYU, and yet I relate this experience because even here at BYU, you are not immune to the adversary's many magnets that look attractive on the surface and may appear harmless only because you feel you can resist. Just claiming to know the gospel is true is not always enough. My young friend at West Point knew. He developed a testimony, but it slipped away from him because he would failed to nourish it. As he had begun to respond to and engage in the activities of his peer, he gradually lost the promptings of the Spirit. I cannot think of a greater loss to anyone than the withdrawal of the promptings of the Spirit. Our testimonies grow through faith and prayer, scripture study, and obedience to the commandments. The daily exercise and the nurturing of these principles is key to a strong and resilient testimony and commitment to those gospel principles. Let me comment on each of these principles. President Gordon B. Hinckley speaks often about our need for faith. I had the privilege of returning with President Hinckley from Nauvoo on the plane following the cornerstone ceremony at the Nauvoo Temple. As we flew over the rich farmland in Iowa, I was commenting on the unbelievable faith and commitment of those early saints. I was musing that I was not sure I would have had sufficient faith to keep company with those faithful saints. In his usual optimistic response, President Hinckley said, Sure you would, Don. And then he made his real point with me as he reminded me that some of the most faithful saints faltered, lost faith, and fell by the wayside. His response strongly suggests that our testimonies are vulnerable if we do not stay on course in keeping God's commandments. President Eclui frequently encourages us to have the kind of faith that moves us to get on our knees and plead with the Lord and then get on our feet and go to work. This is sound advice for every one of us. As we follow his counsel, our testimonies and our commitments to make right choices will grow. As I reflect on my youth and the initial development of my testimony, nothing had a greater impact on its developments than the faith of my mother and father in their daily application of that faith in their prayers. The Lord responded to their faith and prayers, and as we children witnessed the hand of the Lord in our family, we came to know the meaning of what Moroni meant when he said, I would show unto you the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not because you see not, for you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. The faith of our family was tried time and again and periodically special spiritual experiences too tender to tell followed. 
I bear testimony that the Lord does hear and answer prayers, prayers from the hearts of His faithful children. As your lives become crowded with other activities, it's easy to periodically skip a prayer or to use an abbreviated version of your prayers. Don't shortchange the Lord on your prayers. Nothing you will do during any day of your life will be more important to your temporal success or your eternal progress than consistent, humble, sincere prayers offered at least morning and night of every day. As I visited with my young friend from West Point, it became clear that his faith had wavered and the consistency and sincerity of his prayers had waned. The joshing of his peers and the seeming attractiveness of Satan's alternatives had begun to overshadow his commitment to exercise his faith and prayers. Equally important in our pursuit of happiness and a secure testimony is the daily habit of reading and pondering the scriptures. The reading and study habits you are forming in your religion classes will have lasting impact on your personal commitment to the scriptures. The busier life becomes, however, the more difficult it is to stay connected to this important part of our spiritual growth. Yet making the scriptures a part of your daily life is another foundation stone of your testimony. As King Benjamin sternly admonished his people, if you believe all these things, see that you do them. Living to be worthy of the Spirit and then responding to His promptings is an essential ingredient to a strong and vibrant testimony. To be worthy of the Spirit embodies the bottom line of obedient living. To truly accomplish this is the quest of a lifetime. Nephi's early example of obedience has been taught to each of us from our youth. Likewise, we know how Laman and Lemuel developed into the murmurs of the family. They played the role of the natural man that King Benjamin described. Conversely, Nephi made his commitment to the Lord early on when he said, I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. And then he did with unwavering faith. The important point is that Nephi made the decision as to how he was going to respond to the Lord's commandments. From that point forward, he was steadfast. I suspect Satan worked on him just as he does each of us today. And yet the scriptures indicate that Satan was totally unsuccessful in impacting Nephi's decision to do the will of the Lord. The prototype of Lehi's family has played out through the centuries. The world is replete with the Lamans and Lemuels. They are some of Satan's best students. Great blessings come to those who follow Nephi's example. Understanding and responding to the principle of obedience has been of singular importance in preparing us for success and eternal happiness. As the Lord promised Joshua, He will not fail you or forsake you as long as you are striving daily to obey His commandments. As you progress through your education here at BYU, you have some electives or choices in what you pursue in your education. You also have some required subjects. The same is true of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It gives us ample freedom of choices and free agency. But the ultimate success of these choices depends upon our diligence in keeping the commandments and covenants we have made with the Lord. As you pursue your educational goals, it is essential that you keep focused on your spiritual commitments. The challenge with most of us is the tendency to become casual or lose focus on those non-negotiable or non-compromising commandments from which promised blessings flow. Let me give you an example. When Sister Staley and I left Utah en route to the University of Illinois, with everything we contained in our little car, 
We were excited about embarking upon a new adventure. We tried to be diligent in keeping the commandments we'd made in the temple as part of our marriage about one year earlier. As we became fully engaged in our new life as a happily married but financially struggling couple, we lost focus on one important, in fact essential, commandment of the gospel. As we approached the end of the year in the tithing settlement, we had not only slipped on pain or tithing, but we were literally without food or money for the last week of the year. As we sheepishly and humbly approached our branch president at Tithing Settlement, he taught us an important lesson in financial management. But more importantly, he gave us a phenomenal promise. He promised that if we would make up the tithing owed to the Lord and then faithfully pay it each month before we addressed our other needs and wants, the Lord would bless us as promised. In fact, he promised us that as future faithful tithe payers, we would have an increase in income each year thereafter. Think of that, my brothers and sisters. That came true, and that stayed so until I was called for volunteer service as a 70. The Lord truly did open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings to us. My wife and I have been raised in faithful tithe-paying parents. We have been full tithe-payers throughout our youthful years. And yet this came as a poignant lesson of how becoming casual on important principles can cause one to lose focus on what is really essential to the Lord. Satan works constantly on this principle of blurring our focus relating to gospel principles. He seductively encourages our casualness by helping us feel secure that this won't matter or that won't taint my mind. And this is especially true as he casually leads young people down the slippery slope of immorality. I believe Satan has a dominant influence on the media, television, movies, and the Internet. Each becomes seductive in its own way. As young adults, you may feel you can handle the sexually explicit programs on television without impacting your spiritual well-being. Even more pernicious are the R-rated movies that carry you into the more explicit. It is clear that frequent exposure tends to legitimize that which we see and hear. It dulls our sense of conscience between the acceptable and the unacceptable. It's Satan's way of leading you down the slippery slope toward immoral thoughts and actions. As those parts of the Internet that move you into pornography serve as the devil's trump card, it only takes a few viewings of pornography and he has you hooked. And then he begins to work his magic because what you have seen and heard becomes paramount in your thought processes. And the more you see the more addicted you become. You young people, especially you young men, have become Satan's target audience. It is his way of leading you into the abyss of immorality. Let me hasten to add that you married students are also not immune to Satan's attractions. Pornography can become one of the most destructive elements of your marriage. We plead with any of you who are in any way involved in pornography to see your bishop so that he can help you find your way out of the cesspool of filth that is designed to destroy you. Be careful. Be careful that you don't let Satan use his influence to control your thoughts and actions and, ultimately, your future. As you are able to recognize and overcome any personal irritants you may have toward certain principles of obedience, you will feel God's endowing you with the power and the spirit to resist the inappropriate things of the world that Satan would have you enjoy. 
when we're able to declare, as the people did to King Benjamin, that there's been a mighty change in our hearts, that we have no more disposition to do evil but to do good continually, then we will be well on the road to success and eternal happiness. The companionship of the Spirit and the strength of your testimonies will depend on your daily nurturing of faith, prayer, scripture, study, and obedience to the commandments. As you do so, you will be moving toward achieving the spiritual and temporal blessings the Lord has in store for you. You will realize the blessings promised to Joshua, quote, For then thou shalt make the way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. End of quote. The Lord wants each of you to find joy and happiness and success in your professional and family and vocational pursuits. But He wants you to do it in a way that your ambitions for success do not supersede your priority for living gospel principles. President Thomas S. Monson painted the picture as follows, quote, We have been provided divine attributes to guide our journey. We enter mortality not to float with the moving currents of life, but with the power to think, to reason, and to achieve. These are the keys and the years when you must take responsibility for who you are and what you want to become. Think carefully, my brothers and sisters, about where you are. Remember, education is the key to the door of opportunity. The Savior's parables of the talents is so applicable to you at this stage in your lives. Jesus knows there are differences between you intellectually, emotionally, and physically. Therefore, He only expects you to magnify and develop whatever talents and abilities you have. But He expects you to be accountable for your actions in so doing. He will not measure your progress against others. He does not grade on the curve. Rather, He blesses you for what you are doing to magnify whatever gifts and talents you have been given. At all cost, do not allow yourself to, quote, float with the moving currents of life, as President Monson has counseled. Take control of your actions and prepare to succeed at whatever you are capable of doing. Remember President Hinckley's counsel, just do your best. Just do the best you can, but be sure it's your very best. This is also a time in your life when counsel from others can help you decide what you should be doing that will move you toward achieving your full potential. It is the wise counseling and mentoring of a few special teachers and priesthood leaders' parents and a loving wife that helped me make some course corrections in preparation for what has turned out to be a wonderfully challenging and happy pursuit of life. As you recall, the Lord counseled Joshua to be strong and of good courage as he took on his new responsibilities. That same counsel applies to you as you prepare to pursue careers that will take you to different parts of the world. Periodically, you will be placed in a situation that will require you to be strong and of good courage in order to stay true and faithful to gospel principles. As President McKay has said, the one responsibility that one cannot evade is your personal influence. Worldly standards will always be in a state of flux. The only true and unchanging standards are those that are set by the Savior and His teachings and principles of the restored gospel. My wife and I have lived all of our married life in the mission field. We have traveled the world as part of our business career. In the earlier years of our career, to live by LDS standards was an oddity and not a generally accepted one either. Yet, with a few exceptions, once people understood our principles and standards and our desire to stay true to them, they respected us for them. 
As you have the courage to be true to your beliefs, your exemplary conduct will not go unnoticed. And while you will be tried and tested, your faithful adherence to the Lord's standards will be seen as a beacon in the night to those around you. I could recite dozens of examples of my personal experiences on this subject, but let me conclude with a reference to President Hinckley. President Hinckley is an impeccable example of courageous leadership. He is steadfast and true to principle and courageously forthright in his convictions. Yet, with unwavering courage, he has the ability to express his commitments to the gospel principles in clear but acceptable terms to those not of our faith. Hopefully, this will help you be strong and of good courage when pushed to compromise your standards of the Church. You will be respected for it. And if occasionally you are not, you need not worry, because that is not the kind of association you will want or need in your future. As the finest generation this Church has produced, much is expected of you, and we have confidence you will live up to those expectations. I bear testimony, brothers and sisters, of the divinity of Heavenly Father's plan for each of you. Jesus is truly our Savior, and He very much loves and cares for each of you. As you keep His commandments and follow the counsel of the prophets and your leaders, He will be there to guide you through the challenges that lie ahead. He will not fail thee or forsake he. May his choicest blessings be with each of you, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Reaching Our Potential of Joy and Healing. We've just heard from Donald L. Staley. After the break, we'll return with Jonathan G. Sandberg for Healing Equals Courage Plus Action Plus Grace. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Reaching Our Potential of Joy and Healing. Next is Jonathan G. Sandberg, professor in the BYU School of Family Life at the time of this address, titled Healing Equals Courage Plus Action Plus Grace. Please remember as I speak today, it is never about the messenger. It's about the message. I pray I can remember what Martin Luther King Jr. said to himself before his first speech at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Keep Martin Luther King in the background and God in the foreground, and everything will be all right. Remember, you are a channel of the gospel and not its source. On that note, I want you to know how much I'm humbled by this opportunity. I have tremendous respect for the BYU devotional experience. I have for years read, listened to, and benefited from BYU devotionals. I keep a long list of talks in a file that I give out to clients, family members, friends, and young adults just like you. I have seen many times that healing, hope, and peace can come through the Word of God. Or as Jacob said, the pleasing Word of God can heal the wounded soul. For that reason, I felt that perhaps the most helpful thing I could do is simply to provide a list of resources at the end of this talk. I hope these references will help you—your family, your friends, your bishops, therapists—as we all try to deal with the adversities of life and find healing. I've organized those references by topic, for example, adversity, anxiety, pornography use, same-gender attraction. 
and I've listed the talks, most often BYU devotionals, that might be helpful to some reader in the future. Throughout this talk, I will reference many different authors and highlight additional reading that may be helpful for those who are interested. Please take the time to read through the endnotes. I know that healing can be found as we listen to and read words of wisdom and apply true principles found therein. That brings me to today's topic—healing. We all need healing. For some of us, that need is great today. There are likely among us those who are brokenhearted because a relationship has ended badly. Others are in pain because their parents have decided to divorce or a loved one has renounced the Church. Some have learned recently they have a chronic illness, and others have just relapsed into addictive behavior for what seems like the hundredth time. I would guess there are some today who have wondered if depression or anxiety will always be a suffocating influence in their lives, while other students are going through a loss that seems both unfair and unrelenting. Others are drowning in loneliness and isolation, while still others are constantly placed on the margins, even here at BYU. Perhaps these folks look or talk or feel different from what might be considered the norm. This group is broader than we think, and it often includes new converts to the Church, those who experience same-gender attraction, those who are fortunate enough to have diversity in their ethnic, racial, or cultural background, or those who do not like to sing songs about eternal and happy families because that has not been their experience. Even the greatest among us, Jesus Christ, experienced betrayal, mocking, abandonment, loss of loved ones, and physical pain as part of His mortal experience. My hope today is to encourage you that healing is possible if you apply the principles that lead to healing. I will try to explain clearly, and I ask for your prayers that we can understand one another by the Spirit, three principles that can lead to healing, knowing that all healing is a gift from Jesus Christ. For as Isaiah said, with His stripes we are healed. My talk is entitled, Healing Equals Courage Plus Action Plus Grace. And in honor of Martin Luther King, Jr., who was recently listed in Ted Stewart's The Mark of a Giant as one of seven people who changed the world, I start with an example from his life that so clearly highlights these principles. Look for courage, action, and grace as I read his words. Quote, Almost immediately after the bus boycott started, we began to receive threatening telephone calls and letters. They increased as time went on. One night I couldn't sleep. It seemed all of my fears had come down on me at once. I had heard these things before, but for some reason that night it got to me. I went to the kitchen, and I sat there and thought about a beautiful little daughter who had just been born. I started thinking about a dedicated and loyal wife who was over there asleep, and she could be taken from me or I could be taken from her. And I got to the point that I couldn't take it any longer. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I'm taking a stand for what I believe is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. Now I'm afraid. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. I tell you, I heard the voice of Jesus saying, Still fight on. He promised never to leave me alone. And at that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced him before. 
Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. Could you see the pathway to healing? Courage to face a difficult situation and stand for truth. Acting in faith by turning to God in prayer. And peace and strength from the Lord through His grace. Courage, action, grace. What then is healing and why should we seek it? My favorite talk on the subject of healing is a BYU devotional given by Elaine Marshall in 2002 entitled Learning the Healer's Art. I strongly recommend you study it. I assign it in every class I teach from undergraduate to doctoral level. I suggest you read it more than once. Listen closely to her definition of healing. On that first day as a nurse, I assumed cure, care, and healing to be synonymous. I've learned they're not the same. Healing is not cure. Cure is clean, quick, and done, often under anesthesia. Healing, however, is often a lifelong process of recovery and growth in spite of, or maybe because of, enduring physical, emotional, or spiritual assault. It requires time. It requires all the energy of your entire being. You have to be there fully awake, aware, and participating when it happens. Healing is much more than getting better or having your problems go away. Healing is growth, development, maturing. In a word, healing is change. It takes time and energy and struggle. But healing teaches us. As Marshall said, healing can help us to become more sensitive and awake to life. Healing invites the gifts of humility and faith. It opens our hearts to truth, beauty, and grace. But remember, even with all that beauty and growth and grace, healing does hurt. Some people I've had the privilege of working with over the years have had a hard time reconciling the fact that healing requires suffering, and yet it is a gift from the Savior. How is it that a loving God would allow us to suffer? I've come to realize that my Savior cares more about my growth than He does my comfort. One evidence of His love is that He does not spare me from the suffering I need for my development and progression, even when I get mad at Him. As a client once told me, I used to feel guilty for getting mad at God. Then I realized He can handle it. And unlike other humans, He does not punish me when I'm mad or hold a grudge or remind me of it the next time my heart is right and I ask help, ask for His help. I love how Elder Dallin H. Oaks, who is a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in the LDS Church, describes healing. Healing blessings come in many ways, each suited for our individual needs, as known to Him who loves us best. Sometimes the healing lifts our burden, but sometimes we are healed by given strength or understanding or patience to bear the burdens placed upon us. As we consider the key components for healing, let us remember that in the end, healing is a gift from our Savior that will likely require effort and suffering on our part so we can grow and develop through our struggles. This gift is often the refinement we experience in the process. Let me give you one example from one of my heroes. When the relatively young Nelson Mandela first entered prison, he was described by his peers as too emotional, meaning he lacked self-control, passionate, meaning he had a temper, and quickly stung, meaning he was easily offended. But when he left prison 27 years later, he was described as balanced, measured, and controlled. As Richard Stengel noted in his excellent book on Lessons Learned from Mandiba, Nelson Mandela had many teachers in his life, but the greatest of all was prison. 
When pestered about how prison had changed him, Mandela simply said, I came out mature. Was prison a healing experience for Mandela? It depends on how you describe healing. In Elder Oak's words, Mandela developed in prison the strength, understanding, and patience necessary to bear the burdens that were placed on him. What were those burdens? Mandela left prison to lead two groups in the midst of decades of violent and hate-filled conflict into miraculously peaceful development of a democracy and prevent the loss of hundreds of thousands of lives in a bloody civil war. Is that healing? I would say yes. Mandela's personal healing fostered nationwide healing. His life is an example of how courage, action, and grace lead to healing. Now let's shift for a moment to focus on courage. Simply defined, courage, true courage, is not the absence of fear, but the willingness to proceed in spite of it. In order for healing to occur, we have to be courageous enough to move forward, even when we're afraid. I've chosen three examples where courage is needed for healing to occur. First, we have to be courageous enough to face the truth regarding what needs to change in our lives. This type of intense introspection requires tremendous honesty with ourselves. As Jesus said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But that is usually only after it hurts us first. Most of what I know about the courage to heal I've learned from clients. I've noticed among those who find healing a real commitment to learning the truth about themselves, which is never easy. I once asked a client if he really wanted to change. If he wanted to change badly enough to hear the truth about his role in his marriage, he said yes. So I told him I thought he was a diva who interacts with his wife from a selfish and entitled place. I was impressed with his response to me. After a chuckle, he said, You're probably right, and I don't want to be a diva anymore. I want someone to call me out on my stuff, and I want to change. He was back the next week, ready to work. I appreciated his courage. It takes courage to be honest with ourselves. Second, it takes tremendous courage to be congruent, to live a life where our public and private priorities are in sync, where what we experience on the inside is consistent with what we show on the outside. I like what marriage and family therapist Bill Doherty said about integrity. He said, Integrity is harmony between our moral beliefs and our actions. I learned this lesson the hard way when a colleague at Syracuse University gave me some pointed and painful feedback. After one faculty meeting, he said to me, It must be exhausting being you, living a two-faced life. When I asked him what he meant, he explained, I cannot believe the guy I see at work who seems to say anything that will help him fit into the group he is with is the same guy that attends church on Sunday. A little context may help with this story. I was hired at Syracuse as a 28-year-old recent graduate, a white male conservative Christian working in a liberal social activist program. Unfortunately, my colleague was correct. I definitely wanted to fit in, and I was unsure about what I really thought and felt regarding socially and politically intense topics like same-gender marriage. I was posing and pretending to try to fit in. As James in the New Testament said, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. His feedback became more personal for both me and him as he went on to say, Look, as a black man, if the KKK came to town, I know you would hide me in your basement. But as soon as they came to your door, you would turn me over to save yourself. In essence, my colleague was saying, I do not trust you because you do not have the courage to be congruent in all settings. 
It took time for me to internalize that feedback and realize he was right. I had to figure out what I believed, not what my parents believed, not what the Church said was right or my employer, but what I believed was right. I had to get right between God and me. Then I had to learn to live congruently, where my actions were in harmony with my moral beliefs, which took courage. But, oh, how refreshing it is to live a life of integrity. Healing requires the courage to find out what we believe is true and live according to that truth. As the therapist Brene Brown has astutely observed, trying to co-opt or win someone over is always a mistake. It means trading in your authenticity for approval. You stop believing in your worthiness and start hustling for it. I've learned over the years that posturing, posing, peacocking, and pretending are exhausting and bring unhappiness. Having the courage to be congruent brings a settled and peaceful feeling. I like what Elijah in the Old Testament said about congruence. How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow Him. Third, we have to develop the courage to live counter to the world's dominant culture. You know what I'm talking about. The culture where money, sex, material possessions, fame, violent behavior, and carnal exploits are the currency for success. We live in a world where appearance and approval are the keys to social status and power. In order to find healing, we have to develop the courage to say no to the dominant culture. I love what Maury Schwartz says to Mitch Albom about living counterculture in the book Tuesdays with Maury. The culture we have does not make people feel good about themselves. We're teaching the wrong things, and you have to be strong enough to say if the culture doesn't work, don't buy it. Create your own. A number of wonderful BYU devotionals have described the unhealthy culture of perceived perfectionism and how we have to fight against it. In two devotionals given just last semester, both Tyler Jarvis and Kristen Matthews have encouraged us to be more accepting of our imperfections, to be more pleased with our best approximations, our bodies, our gifts, our differences. I encourage you to reread their talks. Listen to what Thomas S. Monson, president of the LDS Church, said about having the courage to live by truth and to avoid the unhealthy dominant culture. Let us have the courage to defy consensus, the courage to stand up for principle. Courage, not compromise, brings a smile of God's approval. A moral coward is one who is afraid to do what she or he thinks is right because others will disapprove or laugh. In her delightful way, author and devoted mother and grandmother Marjorie Pay Hinckley describes the peace that comes when we refuse to compare and despair, as the dominant culture teaches. Quote, Fifty was my favorite age. It takes about that long to quit competing and to be yourself and settle down to living. It is the age I would like to be throughout eternity. In order to find healing, we have to develop the courage to avoid the culture that says there is only one way a specific size, hair color, ACT score, to be a good person or even a good Christian. There are many, many ways to be a righteous, positive influence in the world. If enough of us say no to the dominant culture, it will lose its power. This brings us to the next part of the equation. Courage plus action plus grace equals healing. Action is essential to healing. To act instead of merely being acted upon was a key issue in the war of heaven before we came to this earth. According to the scriptures, God gave unto man and woman that they should act for themselves. But Satan sought to destroy the agency of man. When pondering these scriptures, I realized that when I choose to be inactive or place myself in a state of being acted upon, 
I give Satan greater power in my life. A number of scriptures describe clearly the need to act and not be acted upon. But how is action related to healing? I've come to see that action is the point where belief turns into faith. When we act in faith, moving ahead on a good path, we open the door to grace. Courage to act opens the door to grace, which is the key to healing. Learning to act in faith is one of the great challenges of mortality. What then are the major roadblocks to acting in faith? I would like to suggest procrastination and fear are two of Satan's greatest tools to keep us in the acted-upon position. If Satan can convince us that our fear is too great to be able to act, or that to act is a great idea, but to do it later, he can prevent us from opening the door to grace. Think about how he does this. Maybe you tell yourself, I totally plan on getting married. It's a great idea. In fact, I'm pro-marriage. But I do have these other things I have to do first. Or, my life is in a holding pattern right now. I'm not sure where I should go or what I should do until I get married. I'm stuck. Or, I know I have this problem. Insert pornography use, eating patterns, anxiety. And it needs to be fixed. But I have too much to do right now to put the time and energy into addressing it. Or, I cannot go to my bishop to resolve this sin because I'm afraid he will see how far I've fallen and he will not want to or not be able to help me. Can you see how effective procrastination and fear are in meeting Satan's objectives in our lives? Remember, the longer we remain in an inactive state, the farther we drift from the Lord and His Spirit. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. The more often a person feels without acting, the less he will be able ever to act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. How then can we overcome the tendency to procrastinate or shut down in fear? May I propose that prayer is the simplest form of action. Remember the truth in this hymn. Prayer can change the night to day. So when life gets dark and dreary, don't forget to pray. When you pray, you act in faith and open the door to blessings that God is already willing to grant but that are made conditional upon your asking. In your prayers, be sure to speak openly, sincerely, and directly to Him who is your Heavenly Father. Sometimes I fear our prayers are too vague and too passive to bring about the spiritual support we need. We need to learn how to offer mighty prayer. For example, you may fervently plead, Heavenly Father, I'm procrastinating again. I'm getting stuck in that old pattern. Please help me to break free. Please give me the strength to just get started and then the stamina to stick with the task. Or, Heavenly Father, I'm totally shut down in fear. I need to move forward and act, but this prayer is all I can muster up right now. Please help me find the courage to act. I promise those prayers will be heard and help will come. We call that help grace. And remember, you can still act even if you are afraid or you feel like procrastinating. My favorite example of this type of action is Mother Teresa. I love this quote about her from writer Marcus Goodyear. Mother Teresa doubted. Her spirit wavered. Some days she questioned herself. Some days she questioned God. And this is the biggest encouragement of all. Even Mother Teresa had doubts. Her doubt gives me hope. Not that my own doubt will go away but that feelings of doubt are not as powerful as a faithful decision to act. I may doubt, 
But I still pray. I still go to church. I still worship. Doubt is a feeling, but faith chooses to act no matter our feelings. Another great example of acting in the face of understandable fear is Rosa Parks. Over the last three years, I've had the privilege of co-teaching a civil rights course and visiting historical sites central to the civil rights movement. One of my favorite sites to visit is the Rosa Parks Museum. Mrs. Parks is known for her courageous stand on a bus where she refused to give up her seat. Until visiting her museum and reading more about her life, I did not realize that numerous African Americans had been beaten, arrested, raped, or shot in Montgomery during the decade before her refusal to give up her seat, all for taking a similar stance to Mrs. Parks. In my study of her, I've learned that Mrs. Parks was courageously acting long before that winter day in 1955. For example, she served as a secretary in the local chapter of the NAACP and was a vigorous advocate for justice for black women who had been brutally raped in the South. However, as will be our experience, most of her courageous acts were unknown and unheralded. In the case of the bus boycott, she was in the right place, at the right time, willing to do the right thing, which helped bring needed change to our country. I have since asked myself more than once, am I in the right place? doing the right thing, willing to act as God prompts so I can do the work He has given me? Listen to how one biographer describes Mrs. Parks' courage to act. Parks made an active choice in that instance. In a moment designed to frighten and degrade, she was able to see herself as an agent and claim a space of choice. I love that phrase, see herself as an agent and claim a space of choice. When we have the courage to act, we open the door to healing, as Mrs. Park's courageous act opened the door to the Civil Rights Movement, a movement that brought a large measure of needed healing to this country. This brings us to the final part of our equation. Healing equals courage plus action plus grace. What is grace? I love the definition provided by David A. Bednar, then president of BYU-Idaho, in a similar devotional. He quotes the LDS Bible Dictionary, which states that grace can be defined as divine means of help or strength given through the bounteous mercy and love of Jesus Christ. It is likewise through the grace of the Lord that individuals receive strength and assistance to do good works that they otherwise would not be able to maintain if left to their own means. This grace is an enabling power. Thus, the enabling power of the Atonement strengthens us to do and be good and serve beyond our own individual desire and natural capacity. The scriptures are full of examples of the grace of Jesus Christ as He ministers to people who are struggling to do and be good but are coming up short. They teach of Him reaching out to His people at their breaking point and providing—and these are all quotes—strength, patience, joy, comfort, assurances, peace, faith, hope, courage, determination, and even wiping away the tears from their eyes. The grace of Jesus Christ, His bounteous love and mercy, is available to us if we but have the courage to reach out to Him. Sometimes that grace comes directly through the Holy Ghost, and we can feel His clear and specific love for us. Sometimes that grace comes as Christ touches another person's heart and prompts her or him to share, bless, and uplift another. In other words, grace is often made manifest through the courage and action of a person who reaches out to serve another. 
Let me give you a touching example of this principle of reaching out from the childhood of Thomas S. Monson, the president of the LDS Church. Quote, Again, Christmas time had come. We were preparing the oven for a gigantic turkey and anticipating a savory feast that awaited. A neighborhood pal of mine asked a startling question. What does turkey taste like? I responded, oh, about like chicken tastes. Again, a question, what does chicken taste like? It was then I realized my friend had never eaten chicken or turkey. I asked what his family was going to have for Christmas dinner. There was no prompt response, just a downcast glance and a comment, I don't know, there's nothing in the house. I pondered a solution. There was none. I had no turkeys, no chickens, no money. Then I remembered I did have two pet rabbits. Immediately I took them to my friend and handed the box to him with a comment. Here, take these two rabbits. They're good to eat. Just like chicken. He took the box, climbed the fence, and headed for home. A Christmas dinner safely assured. Tears came easily to me as I closed the door to the empty rabbit hutch, but I was not sad. A warmth, a feeling of indescribable joy filled my heart. It was a memorable Christmas. President Monson was a minister of grace. We can be one too. Grace is the power by which healing occurs. In every aspect of his mortal and post-mortal ministry, Christ went about healing all manner of afflictions. His part is to be our atoning Savior. Our part is to be courageous enough to act. And then he provides the grace and healing. However, sometimes we may not appreciate the manifestations of his grace because healing blessings do not always come in the form we asked. Sometimes his grace is made manifest by letting us sit and struggle with an issue. Again, our Heavenly Father and Savior are more interested in our growth and progression than they are in our comfort and convenience. These moments of struggle often bring the greatest growth. Permit me to illustrate this point with an example from the life of my sweetheart and best friend, Sharon. In April of 2002, Sharon's 56-year-old father, Mike, suffered a major heart attack one day at work. As a result of lack of oxygen to the brain, he was in a coma for a week. Many friends and family members prayed and fasted. He received multiple blessings. His name was placed on the prayer roll at multiple temples. But regardless of these efforts, it was his time to die. As the months passed, we came to some measure of peace regarding his early and unexpected death. At the time, Sharon was working with the young children in our church as the primary president. It was her turn to teach the children, and the topic assigned was, God hears and answers prayers. We talked a lot about that lesson and the dilemma it presented for her. She said, I know God hears and answers our prayers, but if in the end He's going to do what is His will, why should I pray for what I want and need? My dad died anyway because it was God's will. My prayers have not been the same since he died. If you have not yet experienced that kind of despair in your prayers, you likely will. For some of you, that moment is now. So what did Sharon teach the children? Up until the night before, she was not sure what to say. When the day came, she simply taught through her tears. I know that God hears and answers every prayer. He does not always give us the answer we want, and that really hurts. But I believe you'll do better in your life by praying than by not praying. That is why I pray every day. Acting on true principles, even when your heart says otherwise, takes true courage. 
As a result, Sharon received a measure of healing that day through the grace of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite parts about being married to Sharon, and there are many, is to listen to her pray in faith for our children, extended family, and others in need. She knows how to talk to Heavenly Father. As my friend Ty Mansfield has described in one of the stories profiled on the Church's website, mormonsandgays.org, if we can just stay with God, trust Him, and keep doing the things that bring the Spirit into our lives, then light and healing can enter in, even though at the moment things look dark and gloomy. Whether the struggle is same-gender attraction, a crisis of faith, an addiction, or a deep sense of loneliness, just stay with God. Trust Him. There is light and love ahead. Again, if we can muster up the courage and take action, Christ provides the grace. Courage plus action plus grace equals healing. By way of conclusion and testimony, I know that Jesus Christ is the great healer. Over many years, in numerous settings, I have seen wounds of horrific abuse, long-standing addiction, loss that has shattered the soul, and heartache beyond description be addressed, overcome, and resolved through the Atonement of Jesus Christ. I know He is real. He is a living and loving God. I love and honor Him. I know His grace is sufficient, meaning it is big or powerful enough to help us with all of our problems. I know His promises to us are real and true. He can and will cleanse and heal us, as He has said. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Reaching Our Potential of Joy and Healing with thoughts from Donald L. Staley and Jonathan G. Sandberg. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.